0: It's the fall season, which for many organizations means the start of the year-end giving season as well. And this one is coming with some pretty high hopes, as we've seen some declines this year in giving by individuals uh, versus recent history. So just a few fun facts. Americans gave $427 billion in 2018, which unfortunately adjusted for inflation was almost 2% lower than what they'd given the year before. This is according to USA's 2019 report. So what are some of those forces behind the shifting philanthropy landscape and what are certain organizations doing to successfully attract capital? Because some are. Lucky for us, we have an expert here today to share some insights. This is Inspired Investing, where we inform and educate organizations and individuals who strive to invest purposefully with and for a mission. Hi, everyone. I am Claire Gola, head of Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, and today I'm excited to be joined by Greg Hagen. Greg is a Partner and Managing Director at CCS Fundraising, a campaign and development strategy consulting firm out of Philadelphia, where Greg is calling from today. Welcome, Greg.
1: Well, hello, Claire. It's great to be with you.
0: Yes, likewise. Um, So uh, you and I have been on this Uh, panel circuit speaking together lately on a bunch of these topics. So I was really excited to get you here today for uh, one of our episodes of our podcast. Um, So I'm going to start by asking you a little bit about the question I posed above, which is, you know, what are some of these market forces that are out there shifting today's landscape in philanthropy?
1: I think there are a number of market forces, both on a national scale and on an international scale. And there's probably three or four drivers in particular. The first one is globalization, and that's been a a long-term macro trend, but that's very real, and that means an exchange of flows of information, of capital, of ideas, of new initiatives, and it's globalized the landscape naturally in terms of giving as well, international concerns from the U.S. or from the U.S. giving abroad, and we're seeing that shifting in a number of different ways. The second one I would say is just shifting demographics and generational giving preferences, whether that's the individual causes or even the modality of philanthropy. Is that it writing a check? Is that an automatic withdrawal each month from somebody's bank account? Is that a personalized app? That's making a big difference. And I would say that that speaks to the third macro trend of technology. How are we both raising money and giving money as compared to previous years. And I would say the last one is about wealth creation and distribution. And a lot of these market forces are playing out in different ways, culturally, socially, politically, as we're seeing. And there's no difference as well financially in how those resources are distributed. So in some ways, a lot of wealth and asset appreciation is occurring as you and your team very well know, Claire. And in other ways, it's being concentrated in certain segments and sectors of society. So one of the observations we make on the raising capital side of the equation at CCS is there's often a table of gifts or a gift pyramid, and that pyramid is starting to look a little bit more like an Eiffel Tower, so to speak. So I would say those are (laughs) some of the market forces that we're seeing. I'm sure there are others, but those are leading and deterministic in a lot of ways in how the philanthropic ecosystem is evolving
0: so that's interesting you mentioned that that gift pyramid is starting to look like the eiffel tower is that uh do, do you mean that there are gifts larger gifts concentrated with fewer donors
1: exactly and that that speaks to okay. some of your earlier comments about the contributions that were made in 2018 as compared to 2017 and 2016 in other mm. words total philanthropic output is increasing that's going up but the number of donors mm. are decreasing so when you think about the fact that 68% of americans were giving to nonprofit initiatives and causes back in say 2000 and just as of last year in 2018 that number was down to 54% that's not an insignificant drop of 14% and over that same time frame we've seen philanthropic output at a minimum, increase more than 50%. So, right, the Eiffel Tower versus the Pyramid analogy, you have this structure where, and you even see it, higher ed is a great place to look because it represents some of the cleanest and best data that are available from a fund development and resource development perspective. And many of these colleges and universities that are launching mega campaigns, comprehensive initiatives they're seeing 1% of their donors raising 90% of the money and 10% of their donors raising upwards of 96 to 97% of the money. Contrast that view with a couple of decades ago, it was still the 80-20 rule applied that you were going to raise 80% of the money from 20% of the donors. That pathway at the top is more narrow.
0: So that could really cause uh, some issues for the majority of organizations out there then, right? I mean, so we see... Uh, wealth disparity increasing right across our society. There's some very, very wealthy individuals that continue to, to become wealthier, and thank goodness they're giving back. Um, but if the rest of the society isn't necessarily keeping up and folks may be concerned about you know, their, their own finances, what happens to those grassroots organizations, for instance, that aren't necessarily positioned to receive uh, six, seven-figure gifts?
1: Correct. It can be creating a more competitive landscape in one way. And look, there's a larger view that might suggest maybe there's a redundancy. Dare I say that? Is that a little mm. bit bold? And then the number <laughs> the number of nonprofits even, Aborted. I mean, there's right yeah. yeah. 1.2 million registered 501c3s. And the large majority, the vast majority of the, the social good and the for-good sector, does incredible work, important work, in elements of society that maybe market forces aren't capturing or solving for. So it's incredible, but there are also a number of nonprofits that they might have much smaller budgets and perhaps there are opportunities to synergize or to collaborate or to form larger systems thinking efforts to concentrate the talent and the resource and the services that they provide and be more competitive in terms of attracting philanthropic investment.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's a trend that we've been seeing in our business as well, is that, um, you know, a number of organizations are, and I think organizations that maybe were potentially reticent to merge in the past now, because of some of the demographic shifts that you just mentioned, right. Some executive directors and C-suite, you know, they're ready to retire now. And um, so then when you kind of take that piece out of the equation, um, organizations are, are are ready now to to make that uh, shift and to combine in a way that maybe they weren't in the past so um, that's an interesting um, and it makes a lot of sense right if it's a it's an increasingly complex and challenging landscape for raising money, um, why not uh, join forces? That's right. so you know tell me a little bit about some of the strengths or key attributes of the organizations that you're seeing that are really you know they're, they're best at attracting investment capital right now.
1: Yeah, I I think that organizations that are successfully raising significant dollars in a replicable and sustainable way have a number of dimensions that are in in, in the right forces around them. So in other words, and maybe I'll, I'll name a few of them and then explore them for a second, but it's always important that a nonprofit will have a good reputation. I know that sounds obvious, but it is important to the extent that it has visibility, and it's recognized as a force for good and has a decent degree of brand equity, so to speak. The second thing is that they have the right message at the right time to the right people, and more specifically, a powerful and compelling case for support. The uses of capital, what are they going to do with the funds that will have a material and consequential impact on the world or the populace that they serve? The third piece would be the leadership of the organization itself and that's both on the paid staff side, so at the C-suite, the executive officer, the operating officer, the financial officer, the development officer and others, the human capital component and certainly at the board level, advisory board, governance board with fiduciary responsibilities. Who serves on the board is a direct signal to, in many ways, the capacity, the ability to deliver on a mission promise. So that's really important. I would say the fourth and fifth elements that we typically look at would be the, the kinds of investors, philanthropists, or donors. So of what caliber are we seeing? Individual giving, foundation giving, and corporate giving. At its most simplistic level, those are the three capital sources in the philanthropic sector. They're companies, foundations, Mm -hmm. and individuals who are contributing. There's also the plan giving component, which is an outgrowth of individual giving over time. And then the last piece is really a combination of just the boots on the ground, day in and day out, executing an achievable and also aspirational plan. So do nonprofits have a credible pathway forward in terms of the right goal setting, the right key performance indicators, and the right time horizons and strategies to be successful? And when we see nonprofits that have those attributes and those assets associated with them, they're raising a lot of money and they're delivering over time. So just by example, if you think about Habitat for Humanity, at an international level, and even some of their localized markets, just use the case for funding. As a starter point, there's incredible power in that to say, okay, for X amount of dollars, whether it's 150000 or 200000 this is the home, this is the house, this is the restore, repair that you're creating with a deserving partner family. And here's the tangible output and outcome. And we could also monetize that value over time in terms of a social return on investment value created in society. A second example might be the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. They've invested significantly in their human capital, in their leadership, all across the movement. They have about 4,000 clubs. And as a result of direct training in visioning, in strategic planning, in capital raising and resource development, they've been able to grow their movement over the last five years from 1.5 billion to 1.9 billion across the country aggregated all the way up from their local clubs and organizations.
0: Wow. So that's um, Those are great examples. Uh, and you, you named a bunch of attributes that I think are really interesting and helpful. I mean, one thing that we see on the donor side of things is that whole ROI, right, in terms of your philanthropic dollars, really thinking about it as an investment and also wanting to see that impact today. So not necessarily focusing on sort of, you know, that checkbook philanthropy and perpetuity even, you know, of the foundation that a family may have, you know, for instance, but actually putting the dollars out there and making a really significant gift today that can really, you know, create big change.
1: Yeah. And that's interesting, Claire. I mean, I don't know what you're seeing as well. And we've talked about this a little bit, but there's this idea of big bets and band-aids, so to speak. And I don't know if that's the right phraseology altogether, but there's, a, there's an idea of almost a be here forever philanthropy in conjunction versus endor with a be here now philanthropy. And I think maybe a generation ago, we had the institutionalization of a number of foundations for good measure, good cause, good purpose, and they exist and they should. And that's a reliable source of funding and permanence and vision deep into the future. And there's a whole host of advantages with that. And I think as we've been discussing, there also there's a, an experimentation with different capital structures and legal formations, whether they're LLCs or, or benefits or the traditional C3 altogether, but it, it might be a little bit more directed and a little bit more in the moment and a little bit more solve this immediate problem right in front of our face right now.
0: Yeah, that um, reminds me of, as I mentioned, on this speaking circuit that we're all on these days, I keep hearing about the notion of collective impact, right, sort of cross-sector collaboration and fundraising towards issues rather than towards specific organizations. How are you? Are you seeing this taking shape sort of in, in your world?
1: We are in, in a number of different ways. And I, I that, this is where, in a lot of ways, I see the, the private sector playing a role alongside philanthropy and even with the Mm -hmm. public sector. So more and more, I see an alignment around collaborative capital or blended capital, so to speak. I think a great anchoring framework for that are the sustainable development goals as formulated by the United Nations and the 17 of them that you have all these different focal points that you can think about, but they're solving big problems on the planet and in the world and throughout our societies. And the whole thing there is these big problems require complex solution sets. And those solution sets require a degree of public finance, private investment, and philanthropic contribution. And 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 we're starting to see a lot of coalescing a, a around all three sources of capital contribution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That, that ties right into our world. I mean, we actually have a, a portfolio uh, here at Bernstein where – um and I, I didn't actually plant that question for all the listeners out there <laughs> to turn this into a sales pitch for bernstein <laughs> no, that was that was organic it, for the rest, it was the it was yeah. but um we do have this portfolio where you know at one point the the portfolio managers looked around and said these sustainable development goals are really there's 17 of them or 16 of them but they're um there are these themes right uh environmental right. sustainability empowerment of women access to healthcare that Um, These these issues are so big. um, Clearly, government can't do it themselves. Clearly, philanthropy can't do it. There has to be private sector investment. And we're investing in companies that are really aligned very directly with these goals. The portfolios are doing great, you know, from a financial perspective, but equally important for our clients who are invested in it are, are how are you measuring um, impact, right, of these companies in terms of how they're aligned with these goals. It's an interesting thing. And I keep seeing, as you mentioned, all of these different uh, new strategies coming out, these hybrid L3Cs and low, you know, sort of low profit, limited liability yes. companies. Yes. Um, I can't help but think that, you know, if, if, as we fast forward, that this whole universe will just continue to shift and the lines will really blur. Problems are really big, right? You need to, uh, you know, exactly it, it. yeah, this this challenge really creates um, this or breeds creativity, I guess.
1: Which is exciting as well. Exactly mm-hmm. your point. There's a lot more innovation, I think, toward these problem solution sets. And again, to support your view, it's a very authentic view. And I, I mean, part of this is also what I try and work with my students on at the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm fortunate enough to teach at the Wharton School and the School of Social Policy and Practice. And at the School of Social Policy and Practice, a course, on raising philanthropic capital. And this is what we workshop with our master's level students who are getting a master's degree in nonprofit leadership to think about, yes, philanthropy and beyond philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And how else does that play itself through in the world. And the lens, the frame that we use around these issues really becomes the the SDGs and to think, well, what, what purpose do you aspire to have? What problem do you want to solve in the world? What kind of meaningful contribution do you want to make? So just even as an exercise academically, but to see that play out in a material way with professional organizations and advisors and philanthropists and investors is producing some very powerful outcomes.
0: So what do you think, as you look out 20, 30, 50 years, what What do you think the philanthropy landscape looks like?
1: Well, I guess the farther out we look and the less risk <laughs> that poses to me personally, because you may or may not be. So I could say, guess what, Clara, say whatever you now, want. This is yeah. Now, if you ask me what's going to happen tomorrow or next year, that's the ultimate definition of risk is, I think, is it. Howard Marks would say the definition of risk is many things can happen, but only one thing actually will happen (laughs) in any given moment or point in time. But I see trends in a number of different ways. One we've touched on in terms of this idea of collaborative or blended solutions and capital. And I think we're going to see more of that evidence Mm -hmm. based by the Omidyar Network or some of the experimentation Mm -hmm. with the Gates Foundation or Chan Zuckerberg Initiative these different forms and modalities of thinking about solving really big problems. I think the second thing we're going to see more of is personalized philanthropy. So this idea of these these personal philanthropic profiles or platforms and we can learn from other sectors too when you think even about Disney they have these animated pictures and they have these Mm -hmm. theme parks and they have these characters that they create. But at the end of the day, they're trying to create a world with billions of people and hundreds of millions of customers and people who go to these theme parks day in and day out. How can you turn a mass group of people into a customer segment of one? How can you really personalize the experience? And they've done that beautifully with things like, FastPass and the Magic Band and the other pieces that you get and the the technology that they're experimenting with. In fact, Nicholas Sigelkow and Christian Turwish just wrote a book where this is noted. It's called Connected Strategy. And I think that's going to start to play through on the philanthropic lens as well, that this personalization by way of technology, where people want to give, how they want to give, being the change that they seek, Mm-hmm. In the world. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And then the third thing I would point out, it's still kind of a debate of where is this going to go? Is it going to continue to be a democratization of philanthropy or will it trend toward a concentration of mm-hmm. philanthropy? And I, I think there's still a lot of question marks around that. Yeah. And, and that's going to be a derivative of so many other things, culturally, socially, financially and otherwise. Over the next generation.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think about my 13 year old and my 14 year old. They don't think about things in the car- like sort of a compartmentalized way that we have historically, right? They will actually go out and they will think intentionally about what products they're buying and what stores they're shopping at and, you know, just how they're living their lives as young kids, right? They're like, Oh, I don't want to go there. I heard the guy who owns it is you know <laughs> this or that, or, um, you know, or I really want to support this company because I heard that they don't test on animals, things like that. So it's, it's amazing to me. To think about how this will all play out, you know, just down the road as, as this whole new generation of people who have so much access to information at their fingertips at any given time. And there's such a, you know, a level of transparency that we never had before, how that'll all play out. So I
1: couldn't agree more. And that's back to some of our original comments. I mean, perhaps, Claire, I, I really don't know. I don't know if anybody knows, but perhaps some of the rationalization around this dip from 68% to 54% philanthropic participation in the market over the last 20 years is because maybe people feel like they're quote unquote giving in Mm -hmm. other ways by way of the products that Mm -hmm. they purchase or by by way of how they invest their capital. And if there are environmental or social or governance ESG factors as you and your team know oh so well, but is that impact orientation achieved through other channels or other means and i just think that's becoming more on the fold this kind of 360 degree review and the business community needs to and will continue to do its role and play its part with movements like stakeholder capitalism or conscious capitalism Mm -hmm. where it's not just the profitability measure and the dividends rewarded to investors per se of course that's super important And yet it's also the employees of the companies and the customers themselves and the environment and the citizenry that surrounds and supports those communities in which these companies operate. So it's just a much more holistic view. Those are some of the observations we're finding and making.
0: That's great. Well, Greg, this has been really good stuff. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Absolutely. Pleasure to be with you, Claire. Thanks so much.
0: And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more from Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, please see the link to our blogs in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com, and be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.